Before we get into our session today, let me let you know where we're going over these next two weeks before we take a two-week break uh, for Christmas. We will meet next week for Sunday school, and then the 23rd and the 30th, there will be no Sunday school. Okay. I'm sorry? Okay. Um, What we're going to do today is we are going to be looking at the revelation of God to Job. Remember what I told you. There's a lot of area that could be covered. Um, In fact, most of Job could be covered in an actual Bible study. That's not our intent. Our intent is looking at Job, the narrative, the framework of the narrative, so that we can learn in times of suffering, whether it's past suffering that we need to deal with or our current suffering, how is it that we present ourselves to God? How is it that we live in fellowship with Him? How is it that we lament? Learning this language of suffering so that we can experience his, both His grace towards endurance, His sustenance during times of suffering, and His redemption of our suffering. So we're going to look at the end of Job today and how God shows up as we've been talking about. Next week, we're going to look at Job and we're going, I'm going to try to put together some things that we have learned in a nice little package so that we have it in our minds of how to live in times of suffering before God. Some of the things we've learned about the language of lament through Job's story before we break and then press on afterwards. And so today, as we look at this finality of Job, I want you all to remember where we are in the story. Last time we met... Job was with his friends, and his friends were sitting in the ash pit, so to speak, suffering with Job, okay, remaining with him. If you remember correctly, when his three friends come to Job because they heard that he'd lost so much of his property, so much of his belongings, but also all of his children, his friends come to him. But when they're coming to him from afar, now that he's under physical suffering with the boils all over his body, they don't even recognize their friend. It was that bad. And it brings them to suffering over his condition. A healthy thing. And what do they do? They just come and they sit with him. They have no words to offer. I've always told you if they'd stayed there, could have been better, even though God was going to use all of their words for Job's sake. And actually for their own, as we'll see. After a week of sitting with Job in silence, just mourning with him, Job begins to offer his lament to God. He cries out to God in the midst of his suffering, and that opens the door to his friends beginning to give their thoughts on his lovely lament. They're going to listen to his lament, but then they're going to correct it. Okay, So that's where we are. The reality of the book of Job is that Job's dialogue with his friends follows a pattern. And it follows a pattern from Job chapter 3 all the way to Job 38. 35 some odd chapters of the dance that occurs relationally, both with him and his friends, with Job and his friends, but also with Job and God. Through all of that. In fact, the dialogue... We see a pattern to it. It's written in a pattern for us easy to understand. Okay? And here's the pattern. 
As I mentioned, Job begins with a lament. His friends in their limited and sometimes wrong understanding of both Job and God, they try to then correct Job's lament. And they often get it wrong. Again, either because they don't understand who Job really is, or they certainly have missed the mark on who God is and what He is doing through all of this. Okay? But they begin to correct it. In fact, we see the three different types of corrections that I mentioned last time. Eliphaz, who we did cover last time, one of Job's friends, says, Job, you're not innocent, for God does not allow all of these things. He doesn't allow such things to happen to one who is innocent. Therefore, Job, accept the discipline of God, because it's there for you. It's there for your correction. And even rejoice in it and turn back to God. And everything that Eliphaz says is good and true, with the exception of one thing. It doesn't pertain to Job. Okay? Another friend, Job, you're not blameless and upright, or God would have protected you from all this. Turn from your evil and God will relent. A third friend, a third subject, your suffering has occurred because, Job, you have sinned. You have brought this upon yourself by your disobedience with God. Therefore, repent to God and He will heal. And once again, all the friends get it right about the wrong man. Okay? They get it right about the wrong man. But here is what happens in all of those 35 chapters. Each one of his friends, to each one of his friends, every time he laments, they correct. And then what happens is this. As every friend speaks to him, Job begins to say, but you're not right about this. If I have sinned, I've asked God to show me. If I've not, if I've not been blameless, God would show me. He's not defending himself from an arrogant standpoint. You need to understand this. He's literally saying, and it even brings him into question, himself into question. Think about this. How many times in our lives have so many friends said something to us or about us or, or give, tried to give us some kind of direction, and we kind of feel like maybe it's not right, but we go with it a little bit in our minds. We begin to question ourselves. Okay? This is what Job is going to go through. When I say he defends himself, I'm not talking again about an arrogant defense, but literally he is conversing with his friends. But I don't see this. If, I've not been, if, I, if I have not been blameless, Lord would show me. I need to see these things. Okay? And then again, that questioning of his friends then leads him to another lament to God. So he responds to his friends, and then he continues to lament his suffering before God. Okay? This is the pattern of all those 35 chapters. But let me ask you a couple of questions to hone in on something. I want to help you. There's no way to perfectly step into Job's suffering. Okay? I'm not naive. But I want to at least help us take a step towards it. Okay? How many of you have ever lost a loved one? Raise your hands. Okay. So you know the pain of losing a loved one and how that lasts for quite some time. Never fully goes away, but very intense at first. Job just lost all of his children. Not one. Not one loved one. 
all of his children. And this is the pain that he is in right now. How many of you have been completely emotionally drained by a wearying circumstance in life or something that's happened to you? Ever been there? Yeah, nobody's not raising their hands. We know what that feels like. You don't think Job was there? Not only was he dealing with the incredible pain of loss of his beloved children, but he has a lot of emotional weariness, drained from things. How many of you have ever been uh, very sick, sick to the point where it just knocks you out for a while? Yeah? Okay. We have to put that, we have to pile that on Job as well. Job has lost his children. Job is going through extremely emotionally trying circumstances. And Job is also ill with major pain, boils all over his body. Now, take all of that and think of yourself trying to press through conversationally with friends. How well would you do? Would that, be, would that not be, even though your friends love you, and even though you love your friends, trying to press through to answer extremely important questions that they're presenting, are you really up to that? If we're honest, of course we're not. And yet Job endured it. And yet Job stayed in the mix. He's getting wearier, no, one, no way around it. Job in his person is getting wearier throughout those chapters, throughout all of those dialogues, because he's not only continuing in pain, those relationships can be draining during those times. And yet, one of the things that amazes me about Job is even though he's coming to what we might call the end of himself, that doesn't mean dying, by the way. You you do understand that. Coming to the end of ourselves doesn't just mean our last breath. But where, man, words are getting hard to come by, it's getting very hard to stay faithful. Job is coming to the end of himself, and yet he is constantly faithful in the midst of his suffering to hang in the game. Like we said last time, and Michael Card puts it so well in the book, Job is staying on the dance floor until the music stops. He is not letting go of God, no matter how weary that he's getting in this process. And I also mentioned last week, and then we'll move on to God's revelation of himself. I mentioned last week that God is using this time with Job's friends to keep Job in that game. All of these questions that Job's friends are presenting as wrong as they are at times and with a good heart as they are. God uses this to keep him in the framework of continually voicing himself and turning to God. Think about this. One friend brings almost an accusation or a a discipline towards Job. Job, turn to God. Well, Job actually does. He turns to God and he continues to lament. You know, who knows had his friends not even not been there? Who knows what, how things might have shaken out? The friends were a gift from God, believe it or not, even in their wrongness. We need to recognize that in this life, not just with friends, but circumstances. It's amazing how things get orchestrated in the times of our suffering. 
that truly is being used by God, not created by God. Used by God to keep us pressing into Him and holding on for dear life. So let's take a look at the beginning of God's revelation to Job. Now this doesn't happen until Job in chapter 38. This goes for four full chapters of God revealing Himself to Job. I mean, this is an immense revelation of, of, of God by way of God questioning Job. I'm not, as with all the conversations with his friends, we're not going over all four chapters. I'm going to give you snippets. We're going to talk about it. We're going to hear St. John Chrysostom talk about this. Job chapter 38. Here's how it begins. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. I want you to remember when it says, Then the Lord, this is after an exhaustive amount of time. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens my counsel? By words without knowledge. Now gird your waist like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Now I want to point out a few things right there. So that we really understand what's being presented. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. In the Hebrew, let me describe the whirlwind to you. Because it's almost a tapestry of a, of a picture for us. Painted. Out of the tempest. Out of the clouds. Out of the storm. The glory of God came to Job. What does that picture remind you of? that would happen later in the Old Testament. When I say later, in time, I don't mean in books. Tempest, cloud, glory of God. No, uh, no, Old Testament, Old Testament. Mount Sinai. What did Mount Sinai look like? Clouds, lightning, storm, glory of God. This is the word that's used to describe this. It says, out of the tempest. And we're going to see St. John Chrysostom's thoughts on this in just a few moments. Out of the whirlwind, God came and spoke to Job. Who is this that darkens my counsel? By words without knowledge. And then I love this statement. I love it because it's so misunderstood. And a lot of times mistranslated. God tells Job... Now gird your waist like a man. Okay, so most people that I've heard for most of my life translate this. It's almost as if, Job, Job, buck up and stand before me. Now they wouldn't say this, but it's kind of the idea of stop being a pansy and stand up, I'm going to question you. Yeah, well that's not what the Lord said to him. Not even close. In fact, the words that the Lord said to him when he said, gird your waist like a man, is actually the most incredibly encouraging statement that he could have said to Job that was a blessed splash of cold water in his face so that he might set his face immediately towards him and receive what God was about to say. Because when God says, gird your waist like a man, it's as if he's saying this. This is from that Hebrew expression. Okay, Job, place your clothing back on himself. Because remember, he had removed his clothing, rep repenting in dust and ashes. 
Okay? Job, place your clothing back upon yourself. Let your dignity in the midst of all your discouragement, in the midst of all your pain and suffering, let your dignity come back to you. In other words, come back to your true self for a moment. And what dignity is he talking about? The dignity that I have created. Every human person is created with dignity because every human person is created in the image of God to grow in the likeness of God. What is God saying in the midst of all of His dejection and turmoil and suffering? Job, by my voice, gird yourself around your waist. Stand before me as the man that I have created. Your friends are wrong about you. They don't get it. I have not caused these things. Satan has, by his hand, done these things. Gird yourself up in the dignity of your creation, and I'll speak with you, God to man, God to Adam, God to created person. Do you see? Do you, are you getting the. I'm trying to use a lot of words to describe it because it's so important. Come back to your dignity. Just because you have sores, just because you've lost your family and you're in suffering. I know all of this. I've watched it. But your dignity is still intact. Why? It's not about how you see you. It's about how I see you. It's about how I define you. You get that? Okay. So this is what God says. He was incredible encouragement. And now God is going to reveal Himself through questioning. And that questioning we'll find is an absolute revelation of who God is. And by that questioning, He's continuing to bring Job's dignity back in light of who God is. We're going to see this by the response of Job later on. So here is how God begins to reveal Himself. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding... Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its rising? Every question that God asks for four chapters is a question designed to show who God is so that Job sees Him clearly. He is bringing presence. Revealed presence. And in the end, He's going to show the fullness of Hesed, the loving kindness of God to Job. Okay? For example, when he says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? What he's really saying is, I am the one who laid the foundations of the earth out of nothing. And no one else could do it. In these questions and in this revelation, what God is really showing is, He is both revealing Himself to Job, but He's also showing that God will always be beyond Job. It's the same thing in our lives. The church teaches us that we absolutely have an eternity to grow in the knowledge of God. We will never fully grasp, never fully grasp God. 
because he's just that other. He is just that great and beyond and incredible, and yet he reveals himself to us to bring us all along the way. Always revealing himself. That's what the fathers teach us. A few more statements for you and we'll move on. He asks, where is the way to the dwelling of light and darkness? Where is its place? That you may take it to its territory, that you may know the paths to its home. Can you lift your voice to the clouds, that an abundance of water may come down? Can you send out lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the mind of man? Or who has given understanding to the heart of man? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? God says, gird yourself up. And then He reveals Himself. I want to read to you Saint. I want to read to you Saint John Chrysostom on this. The first is on this. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Okay, remember we described that: the cloud, the tempest, the storm, the glory of God. Listen to Saint John Chrysostom. In my opinion. He has placed at this stage a cloud over this righteous man in order to raise his thoughts and to persuade him that that voice came from above, as in the case of the mercy seat placed on the Ark of the Covenant. Since the cloud is a symbol of heaven, listen to this, since the cloud is a symbol of heaven, it it is as if God wanted to place heaven itself over Job. Wanted to place heaven itself over Job. It's as if he moved his throne near him. Is is that not... I read St. John Chrysostom this week and almost wept at that thought. Here Job has been suffering. God has known it. And when God draws near and speaks to him out of the cloud, out of the, the whirlwind... It's as if he placed heaven itself right over his man, his faithful man. And it's as if he took his throne. I kind of pictured it in my mind when I saw this. God took his throne and pulled it up right right next to his suffering faithful servant. That is a beautiful picture. And that's what St. John Chrysostom is saying. And then he says, that's what happened, it seems to me, on the mountain when the clouds settled on it. He's talking about Moses. So that we might learn that the voice came from above. Let us listen carefully because it is the common master of the universe who speaks. Let us see how he exhorts Job. Does he do it with the same as mankind? Not at all. Now we find a clear solution to all previous disquieting questions. All the questions of his friends, all the questions of Job. Dear friends, which Job asked and to which we have tried to find a solution. God has shown up to answer it all. And the answer of, his, the answer of it all is who he is. Okay? Now, again, my mind went immediately to presence of God in the life of those who suffer. I think all of us have experienced it to varying degrees. Kathy and I talked extensively during her time after the loss of Larry. How many times, I mean, you can't, probably can't even count that the presence of God was there in the midst of that suffering came to you in such a way 
that sustained your very life emotions and the whole process of grieving. And, and I'm, not, I'm not making that up. You, you and I talked about that. It's as if God pulled up His throne right next to you. Right? He was holding me in His hands. Absolutely. Absolutely. And many of us could attest to these very things. Okay? Alright. Let me read to you on God revealing Himself to Job by way of questions. By way of questions. He speaks to this. St. John Chrysostom does. Since Job was overwhelmed by his dejection... God encourages him with his words so that he may pay attention to what is said now and he introduces his speech in the form of questions which is the best means to convince. Above all, he shows that he does everything with wisdom and intelligence and therefore it would have been inconsistent with God who did so many things with wisdom and intelligence to neglect the human beings whom he has created even when they are wretched as Job was. I love that phrase. It would be inconsistent with God to neglect those for whom He has created everything, even in their wretchedness. What causes in us a sense of wretchedness? It's a question. Messing up. <laughs> Messing up. Okay, our, our disobedience, our sin, our willfulness, and so on, causes us dejection, causes us potentially shame, which we'll talk about in a minute, right? What else? Other things can cause this wretchedness, yes? I think uh, not, not understanding what's happening to us, mm. the too much unknown and too much <clears throat> doubt. In the midst of that suffering, we just don't we don't get all that's happening. That's a good point. Thank you. Grief. 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 Greed. I'm I'm so sorry. Greed. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Now all of these things, for the most part, we're talking about choices we make. But there's something else that can cause us to live and exist in a wretched state. Suffering. And things other people have done to us. Pain. Suffering. Things that happen in this life like Kim is talking about. But you know what? Things that people do to us can cause us suffering and that wretched state. Okay? All of these things that you're talking about are spot on. But listen to what Job is doing. He's coming to Job in his wretchedness. He's coming to Job in his wretchedness. And he's bringing him to his dignity. That's what God is doing. Let's go back to the Garden of Eden for a minute. Because I think we need to recognize... I want to make a statement about wretchedness and the shame that can get birthed from our sense of our wretchedness if we're not careful. And that's this. Shame is satanic. I make that bold statement very clearly. 
Now, I'm not talking about when God shows me I'm wrong and I'm ashamed of myself and I admit it to Him. That's confession. That's repentance. That's not what I'm talking about. But when we devalue ourselves in our own minds because of things that have happened to us, because of things that we have done, and I go back to the garden to show you this. A lot of people in the Christian world all around us believe that the fall of man centered around an act of disobedience, and they leave it at that. God said, don't, they did, that's it, they're out. That is not the whole story. The Orthodox Church, the Orthodox Church teaches that there is so much more to this in the fall of man and man's separatedness from God. Yes, man sinned. But then something else happened. Do you remember what God's response was? After they had sinned and fallen to the temptation of Satan, what did he do? You might remember? Before he clothed them. What did he say? He went looking for them. This God, when man sinned, his first response is, Adam, where are you? Where are you? You know, you know what that does mean? Come to me. Come to me. The nature of God never changes. Last week, when was it? I can't remember whether it was Wednesday or last Sunday. I get fuzzy. The parable of the lost sheep. What shepherd, when one sheep goes astray, doesn't leave the 99 and go take care of the one? This is a God who constantly pursues those who have failed, who have wandered away. Okay? So God calls to them, but what was the response of Adam and Eve? What they do? They hid. Why did they hide? They because they fell to the second, they fell to the second and equal temptation and deceit of Satan. The first deceit was you can become like God without God. So do what he said, don't do. That was the first one. That's the first temptation, first deceit. The second one was this. Because you did what you did, you are not worth going before Him. You are now devalued. How dare you think that when this God calls, who you just disobeyed, when He comes a-calling, you can't go before Him. What did they do? They hid. What might have happened had they come? Mystery. But it's an honest question. Okay? And even after they hide, God still has a dialogue with them. He tries to bring about repentance. But if you remember this, when they answer God in this dialogue, instead of looking inward at themselves and saying... Lord, we gave in. We sinned against you. They don't do that. They're still in too much shame. So they blame others. It never comes into themselves. It's all about the others. Adam says, Eve made me do it. Eve said, Satan made me do it. Everything's deflected. And there's no repentance. And so therefore we have the separation and fallenness. Here's what's happening with Job. Job is a man 
that is dejected and, as St. John Chrysostom said, in a wretched state. Okay? He is not a man who is given over to shame. Very different, very different than Adam and Eve and some of us sometimes. So what's happening with Job here is that God is calling him to gird up his waist and come back to his dignity. Stand before him so that he might bring him out of his wretchedness back to his true human person. He intends to make whole what is broken. Okay? I'm going to leave this idea with shame in in a number of ways. There's not one of us in this room that there's not a tweak of shame that we have to deal with. Some more than others because of various things that have happened to us or various things that we have chosen throughout our lives. It's just, it's natural in the body of Christ. But I'm going to tell you this right now, it is unnatural in the body of Christ for who we really are. Shame. Shame. Was started by Satan in the garden. And it continues to this day to keep man and woman separated from presenting themselves fully to God and accepting His taking them from their wretchedness and making them whole in their dignity. And I ask you to search yourselves. It's a good time during this penitential season to ask the Lord, reveal to me where there is shame so that I see the difference between that and true repentance. So that I might receive your revelation into my life. So God reveals to Job in four full chapters. You ready to hear Job's response? Chapter 42 of Job. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked... Who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I've uttered things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said I will question you and you shall answer me. I have heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Very important. You want to talk about a tightrope of shame and repentance? A lot of people read that word, I abhor myself. And it can bring about self-loathing if you don't understand what that word and phrase really means. The reality is this. I abhor myself means this in the Hebrew. I decrease in my own eyes. You are perfect I'm truly not. I see myself clearly. I didn't see myself clearly before. Abhor is not beating ourselves senseless over who we are not or what we have done. It is coming back to ourself. I remember Deacon Peter in one of our Wednesday night studies during Lent last year. We were talking about repentance. And he defined repentance according to the fathers perfectly. It's a splash of cold water bringing us back to our true self. I see myself very clearly. So I decrease from what I thought before. Or I change my mind on what I thought before. If I saw myself differently, Lord, than you saw me. I abhor myself. I shrink away. I melt away. And I mourn in a healthy mourning over my condition. That's the same mourning that Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn. 
for they will what? Always. Those who receive the revelation of God and see themselves through His eyes and mourn that which they're not, and yet at the same time present themselves to God in the midst of that very morning, they find the comfort of God. And also on the other side of that, which we'll see with Job 2, restoration. Because the heart of repentance is the one that God rushes to bless, rushes to address, and meets us right in. Um, If you might picture, go back to the prodigal son. Remember when he finally came to himself in the mud. And he decided to go back with the humility that I'm not worthy to be anything but a servant in my father's house. What was the response of the father to repentance? He dashed out of the house when he saw his son coming. And he ran to meet him halfway. And he called everyone to gird up his loins, give him his dignity back, put the robe on him. Kill the fatted calf. We celebrate. That's the response of our Lord presented in that parable to every one of us that comes to ourself, mourns over that and presents ourselves to God. Because everyone that mourns and experiences Christ in that receives what Job would receive in various different ways. But now let's talk about, to conclude, Job's restoration. That comes in Job chapter 42, but I want you to know something. A lot of people miss this. It's not, only that Job, it's not only Job that is restored by the revelation of God. So are his friends. Listen up. Job 42. And so it was after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, and as my servant Job has. Now therefore take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams. Go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering. My servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept him, lest I deal with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. They misunderstood God. But you know what they're being asked to make sacrifice to cover? The same sin of Moses. The reason Moses was not allowed to cross uh, cross the Jordan River and lead his people into the promised land because one time Job misrepresented God. I'm sorry, Moses misrepresented God to the people. They cried out for water as they had before. God said, take the staff, go strike it. Moses goes to the rock and he strikes it with anger. And the people know it. But God wasn't angry. That's the same thing, the same sin of Job's friends. They misrepresented. They didn't know his heart. They didn't know his heart. And so what does he do? He places Job, his beloved faithful person who endured and has been restored. He places him as a mediator between God and Job's friends. And all the church fathers say, there's your picture of Christ who endured suffering to become our mediator, to mediate for us with our sacrifices to God and reunite God to man. And so Job's friends would be restored through Job by God. Isn't that beautiful? Job's restoration. Listen to it. Now the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. 
For he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first Jemima. The name, where did that come from? i got to look that one up. Not the syrup. i got to look that up. That one got me. He called the name of the first Jemima, the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hapuk. In all the land there were found no women as beautiful as the daughters of Job, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his children and his grandchildren for four generations. So Job died old and full of days. Now lest you think... This is a Disney happy ending. (laughs) Sounds like it though, doesn't it? Man, you go through all of this reading and you you endure the suffering with Job as you read it. And all of a sudden, in these these few precious verses, and all lived happily ever after, it sounds like. Let me ask you a question. When humanity goes through any kind of suffering, it's not happily ever after. Why? There's scars. Healed. But they're scars. But what do the scars do? Our scars are for... Thank you. We look at our own scars and we remember what God did for us. And others look upon us. They are scars that testify to the greatness of God. That God is the one who came to me in my suffering, my wretchedness. That God is the one who redeemed me. Our scars testify. And yes, the rest of his life most certainly was blessed of God more than the first of his life. But never forget the scars and that they testify to God. And that's every one of us. That's every one of us. Michael Card says it this way in A Sacred Sorrow. He says, All that Job had lost was violently ripped away from him. After all he suffered, after all he had lamented, what does Job get back? He gets God back. He gets God back. I love that. And that's the truth. So next week, we're going to take what we've talked about with Job, and I'm going to give you some insights based on both our discussions and things that I've brought to give you a list of things to look for that may help with past suffering, current suffering, or future suffering that we learn from his lament. But not only that, what's the difference between Job and us? Job didn't have God, the triune God, living within. We do. We have the blessed Trinity and we have the framework of the Christian walk to help us in our lament as well as what we learn from Job. We're going to talk about that next week. Let's stand.